Hello and welcome to the Summit Church Podcast. Our messages are designed to help teach and equip you on your journey to lead people to follow Christ. We hope that this message will inspire and encourage you no matter where you are in your journey towards Jesus. If you have questions, want to talk, or want to learn more about Summit, visit us at summitniles.com. I brought my coffee because this is the second service. And uh, I don't know how you people do this. It's amazing. The ability to, to, to do, like, do the same talk twice. Amazing that they, these guys can pull this off. Um, I do have breakfast on the regular with Dan and with Chuck. Um, and they are remarkable. They're remarkable. Um, there's a couple of reasons why we're actually, we've been here with you almost a year. There's a couple of reasons why we're here. Um, one of them is this. We believe that all the believers in a city are the church at that city, but there are no places where all the believers in Niles gather. So we're, we got to try to figure out, like, with which part of the body of Christ at Niles will we gather? And it's hard to figure that out. It's really hard. Um, so we asked Jesus, hey, Jesus, where's your invitation for us? And uh, when I asked that question moments later, I got a text message from Jared Sergio, who said, hey, I just want to extend an invitation to to my church, uh, where I play the drums and take care of the youth, you know, and do stuff like that. Um, and I, you know, and he had the hots for my daughter. So, like, I understood what was going on. He was playing the long game, you know. It was cool. It was good. Uh, so I came and I sat next to him right back there. And, um, and I messed with his phone while he was, while he was drumming, you know. And I, I screwed with his phone as much, as much as I possibly could to see how he reacted. Um, while I was here, uh, Dan didn't speak. Neither did Chuck. And across the next, like, several months, there were multiple times where neither Dan nor Chuck spoke because your leadership is not controlling. Uh, and that was actually what kind of cemented the deal for my family being here is you're being very well led. So as a guy who works with leaders and develops leaders and helps with pastoral burnout and missionary burnout and stuff, I got to tell you, uh, they're flawed. Why <laughs> are they flawed? But they are awesome. They're remarkable. So... Thank you for making room for my family. Uh, we sit here. W- raise your hand if you're my family. Yeah. We sit here every 1045-ish, you know. I mean, we're here at 1045. We live two minutes away. We leave our house at 1015, and we get here at 1055. I honestly don't know how that happens. Uh, it has something to do with the teenagers, I'm sure, but it, it, it's, it's a thing. Okay. I'm going to pray in a second, but I have to introdu- I've introduced me a little bit. Dan introduced me very kindly, more kindly than I deserve. I'm going to introduce to you what we're going to do this morning, and then I'm going to introduce you to you, uh, which sounds weird, and trust me, it is weird. Spoiler alert, there will be several weird moments during today's conversation. Um, I've been in uh, other countries for a long time. We all know missionaries are weird. We know that. That's a, that's a given. All missionaries are weird, and I'm certainly no exception. Before that, though, uh, also, I'm, I'm probably on the spectrum, so there's going to be some moments where you feel really awkward and I don't notice at all. And you have to live with it because I have the microphone and we'll just keep going. All right? You go with that? Yeah? All right. Oh, you don't have to actually clap. That's kind of, thank you, though. That's kind. You are a clappy community, too. Let me tell you. Let me tell you. you are a, we are a clappy church. Uh, I love it. I love it. Okay. So here's the, here's the, here's the, the, bra- the preview of, of today's conversation. We're going to look at Jesus and specifically compassion in the ministry of Jesus. Then we're going to look at God, and specifically, Jesus' imagination of God's compassion. 
Then we're going to look at you, and specifically, Jesus' imagination of God's compassion in you. We're going to do this by, by exploring three passages in Luke and then some backstory in the Old Testament. Here's the theological undergirding for you, you Bible nerds. <clears throat> Someone goes, yes, that's right. <laughs> uh, here's, the, here's the theological undergirding. You have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Three of them are called the synoptic Gospels. Synoptic means they see it the same way. Synoptic, S-Y-N, not S-I-N, don't worry about that. Synoptic. They see it the same way. These guys wrote around the same time, and John wrote decades later. They are telling very similar stories, and John is telling a story from a really different angle. So these three are called synoptic gospels. Here's why this matters to you. When the, when the synoptic gospels make a big, giant deal out of something that John never mentions, it tells us, since these were earlier, that the earliest communities of Jesus' people were working really hard to remember something about Jesus because they felt like it was central to Jesus and their faith. Okay? So what we're gonna we're gonna explore something that the very earliest communities of believers thought was the core of the way of Jesus. You understand? Okay, good. He says yes. So that means yes. Let me let me pray and then I introduce you to you, because that's where it'll be the first weird moment. Fear not. We'll get through it. Lord, um, we love you, Jesus. We need to see you, Jesus. We know that, um, that we are changed from glory to glory as we behold your face like in a mirror looking at us. We know, Paul says, we know that we are changed from one kind of beautiful to an even more kind of beautiful beautiful when we look at you looking at us and that your spirit is the one who does that. We know that. We believe you. So we really need you to make our eyes able to see you looking at us. We need you to help us see you, Jesus. We need to see you the way you understand yourself. We need to see God the way you understand God. And we need to see ourselves the way you see us. We need it. We need it so we can go be the church in the world. We need it. So act. Do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Strengthen us for the things that we can do, the ways we can participate. And Lord, would you please live in my voice, shepherd my imagination, shake out the Etch-a-Sketch, like wipe the, wipe the whiteboard from the last uh, service, and help us to all be fully present in this one. Amen. I'm going to ask you a question. I do a lot of leader development. I do a lot of leader development with people who work in really, really difficult environments, who suffer terrible things um, and have to like, navigate, have, have to navigate life. I, I just was working with a guy who was rescuing orphans from the front line of the war in Ukraine. Um, and he saw terrible things and was involved in awful stuff. Uh, and it's really hard to get all the way in the room for any of us. So one way we do that is we ask this question. I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to think about it for just a moment. What were your dominant emotions this week? An emotion is dominant if you had it a lot, if it was a mood that you experience frequently, or if it hit you like a spear in the chest. Take 15 seconds and notice what your dominant emotions were this week. All right. 
I'm going to read you this poem. You'll see why I'm opening. This is the You Are Here exercise that we're doing right now. We're helping you get here. I know you can't read that. My apologies. The, la the last uh, service, I clicked onto that slide and someone just laughed maniacally at the absurdity that I would expect you to be able to see that font. So I'm going to read this to you. It's one of my favorite poems. It's by a monk who became a lawyer who became a novelist. Right? I don't know. Who does that? This guy did. I'm going to read you this poem, and I want you to notice which words stand out to you. Once you've heard a child cry out to heaven for help and go unanswered, nothing's ever the same again. Nothing. Even God changes. But there is a healing hand at work that cannot be deflected from its purpose. I just can't make sense of it other than to cry. Those tears are part of what it is to be a monk. Out there in the world, it can be very cold. It seems to be about luck, good and bad, and the distribution is absurd. We have to be candles burning between hope and despair, faith and doubt, life and death, all the opposites. That is the disquieting place where people must always find us. And if our life means anything, if what we are goes beyond the monastery walls and does some good, it is that somehow, by being here, at peace, we help the world cope with what it cannot understand. I just pop off what word stood out to you. Just say it loud enough I can hear you. <clears throat> Disquieting. That was almost, that was just at the edge of loud enough. It needs to be that loud or louder. Go ahead. Huh? Hope, good. Peace. Cannot be deflected. Yep. Candles burning. Opposites. Good. Well done. All right, what, do you, what did you notice that you felt? Can you name an emotion that you felt when, you read, when I read the poem to you? Really loudly. Pensive. It's the emotionally smart one, right? Use, I don't even know what that word means. That's good. I'm just kidding. I know what it means. I love it. It's good. I won't throw everyone under the bus. Go ahead and share your feelings, and I'll be gentler than I was just now. Sorry about that. Bad form, Virgil. Bad form. Desperation. Two more. Compassion. Huh? Relief. Good. Huh? Healing. Excellent. All right, here's what I want you to do. Sometimes when you notice one of your own emotions, you're like, you're like, and this is one of the reasons why we live like way back away from our feels sometimes, is as soon as you notice it, you like topple in and then your face is all covered in it. That's okay. We just, just don't do that, right? I want you to reach out and touch the feel and don't fall in. And, and this is the part where you're going to feel a little bit weird. I'm going to make eye contact with you. I'm just going to look at you. I need you to let me look at you. Um, and if you, and then I'll, and then it'll take about four minutes because there's a million of you. And then, and then I'm going to, then I'm going to do the talk like normal and you're going to be like, what's wrong with this guy? Okay. Are you ready? All right. Take a second, take a breath, reach in, feel the feel, feel the feel from this week or the feel from the poem. Hmm. You know, we're going to talk about compassion. What's the feel that you wish Jesus could feel with you? 
the field that you feel a little alone in. Reach out and touch that one and look at me. Let me look at you. All right, good. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you. I know that was probably weird for you. Was that weird for you? Yeah? I, it was probably weird for you. Sorry. <clears throat> I'm not sorry at all. Not in the least. I, I'm just, I've been trained to say that when you feel awkward. Um, I don't feel any of that. Uh, it turns out we are ready for change when someone sees us seeing ourselves. It's actually a necessary part of the change process. Uh, it's how we get all the way in the room. It's how we get all the way present to Jesus is we have to experience someone being all the way present to us. It doesn't always have to be the person up front. <laughs> that would take so long. Every Sunday, what a strange liturgy. But um, it's something you can do for each other when you come in. You can just, an extra awkward moment of eye contact, uh, and then the people are all the way in the room. You could, you could give that a shot. Okay. All right, we are all here now. You feel like you're here now? Yeah, I'm all the way here. You're all the way here. Some of you are carrying a lot, man. Thank you for, thank you for letting me see that, by the way. You know who you are. You wanted to hide and you didn't. That's just really good. Well done. I want to tell you my favorite Jesus story. If Jesus wasn't God, I would still follow him just because of this story. I would give my entire life to follow this man just because of how this story shakes out. And it's entirely because the first time I read it and really saw it for what it was, I realized how not like Jesus I was. I think I'm more like Jesus now in this story than I was when I first saw it. But that first time, man, he got me. He caught me. Wow, he caught me. Let me tell you this story. Do you know this story? I really changed gears hard for you. Sorry about that. I love this story. It's called, it's, in, in Luke, it's called the widow of Nain. It's, it's beautiful. So Jesus is walking toward Nain with a crowd. Jesus and his cur, starts with cur, ends in out. Crowd, thank you. Play along, guys. Jesus and his, thank you. He's moving toward Nain. And out of Nain, a walled city, out of Nain comes a widow and the entire funeral procession for her son. Now, she's a widow, and this is her only son. Her son's an adult. It's significant. Uh, he was financially responsible for her. He's old enough, that means that she's old enough, that she cannot now do the only thing that a destitute widow can do in first century, and that is prostitution. She's too old for that. So now she has absolutely nothing that she can do to survive. Her life is over. She has lost not just her son, but everything. And there's a big crowd with her, <clears throat> the, the, the mourners. Big crowd with Jesus, big crowd with her. So they meet in the middle. <laughs> they meet, and Jesus sees her and stops seeing anyone else. This is what I love about this. I actually have this painting in my office. My friend Jillian gave it to me. I have this painting in my office. Well, here's what happens before I explain to you why I love this. Jesus sees her and goes, oh, don't cry. And walks over to the beer, the, the thing he's being carried on is called a beer, touches it, which makes him ritually unclean. Now he can't do anything, he can't go in a synagogue, can't go in a synagogue, nothing he can do. He's completely shuts his ministry down, right, by touching this beer. And he says to the guy, he says, hey buddy, get up. In your translation, it's going to read, and he said to her, weep not. But I'm sure that's not how it sounded, because that's, that would be st 
stupid. And then, and then he goes over to the boy and says, young man, I say to you, arise. But that, tr- that word that's translated young man literally is what you'd say to a, like a, a younger guy. Hey, buddy. Hey, man. Hey, man, get up. So the guy, he sits up. And everyone's looking at the, at the kid, at the guy. Everyone's looking at Jesus. But Jesus only has eyes for her. That's it. Jesus is still looking at her. That's why I love this picture. He takes the guy down off the beer, walks him over to his mother, says, here you go, and leaves. When I first saw this, I was like 28, maybe 30, and I realized, here's what I would have done. I would have raised the guy from the dead, brought him to, I probably would not even brought him to his mom, if I'm honest. Would have raised him from the dead, everyone would have, oh, look, and then I would have said, behold, the hand of God. Listen to what I have just, and I would like, I would capitalize on the miracle to hold the audience so I could tell them the message, what was the really important thing. But for Jesus, the really important thing was the woman. When your guts are falling out of you, when you are broken, he only has eyes for you, and his compassion is not utilitarian. He does not help you to get something else done. You are not a pawn in a cosmic scheme to save the world. You are worth his attention all by yourself, according to Jesus and Luke and the Holy Spirit who inspired the writing of this story. You are welcome to argue with any of them. I think that you will lose. So <clears throat> the reason that Jesus does this, what happens before he goes, oh, don't cry, is, and the reason, I, the reason I translate it like this is because Luke says he was moved with compassion. The word is splagnizomai. Click nidzomai. There we go. Splagnizomai. And it comes from the Greek word splagna, which means guts. It, it means this. this is, all of this is in this word. He experienced an emotional, affective discomfort in his stomach, so sharp and severe, so, ah, like, ah, it's where we get the term, I felt it in the pit of my stomach, right? He, ah, it hurt him so much that he had to act, and he had to act until the entire problem was resolved. That is splagnizomai in the New Testament. That is moved with compassion in the New Testament. And this is how the first, the first Jesus communities remember Jesus. That is not the Jesus of my, of my Sunday school growing up. Your Sunday school is probably better. My kids, some of my kids go to, it's super cool here. Like, you guys do great work. Great work. <clears throat> I got my two-year-old comes home with a picture and like, she learned that God made dogs today. I don't think she did. But you sure taught it. Good job. That's like really well done. Good job. You took it so seriously. I love that. I just love you. You people are great. So what am I talking about? Uh, back it up. Back it up. Splagnizomai. Move with compassion. Huh? Sunday school. Thank you. All right. In my Sunday school growing up, Jesus existed on a flannel graph. Does anyone remember flannel graph? No? Shoot. Uh, in my Sunday school growing up, I'm that old. Jesus, Jesus was more like a Jedi than this guy. Jesus moved through the Gospels dispassionately, with no emotions. And he just did things because they were the right thing to do, and he was always trying to teach us something. Jesus always had an ulterior motive for every beautiful thing he did in my Sunday school growing up. And this is not the Jesus of the Gospels. The Jesus of the Gospels spent long periods of time in solitude where he heard instructions from his father and downloaded his father's feelings about the world into his own chest. And then he moved through the world 
and he would witness suffering that would compel him so severely that he had to act to make it right and everything else stopped. And then when it was done, he moved on back about his life. The reason this is happening is because God's vast compassionate heart lives in Jesus' vast human heart. And when those things break into one another, it, it erupts into the world and the kingdom comes. In fact, in fact, the way the gospel writers write this out, the way they lay out the splug needs of my statements, this is the only way the kingdom comes. The kingdom only comes via compassion. That's why it is the center of the Jesus way. That's a big deal. Further, not only is Jesus compassionate, he is compassionate specifically because he is God, not in spite of the fact that he is God. You, you track that? Again, in my growing up, and my dad, did knock me, my dad didn't knock me around. He didn't beat me, but. <laughs> That's a big but, right? Yeah, no. In, uh, somehow in the theology I imbibed growing up, God was this abusive parent that wanted to hurt me. But Jesus got in the way, like an older brother who eats the beating. All God wanted to do was judge me, and Jesus got in the way and ate God's judgment. But what it still left me with the awareness that God was fundamentally at all times disappointed in me, angry at me, or couldn't be bothered to make eye contact with me. Like it hurt him to look. That's messed up, right? But the, in the Gospels, God, Jesus is compassionate because God is compassionate, and you see it in the way Jesus tells stories about God. Jesus tells two stories in which your character, the sinner, has messed up horribly, and Jesus tells a story to tell you how God feels about it. Let me show you one. This is Luke 15. I'm going to read it to you. And this is an icon from, it's a Greek Orthodox icon. And I love it because it's, this, is the good, this is the prodigal son. And I love this icon because they paint Jesus in the father character because they're trying to show you that the father in the story is God and Jesus' face is the face of God toward you when you have screwed it up really badly. After I grew up in a theology that had God as an abusive parent, I entered a theology that had God as an egomaniac who was only after his own glory. God was after his own glory, his own glory, God's glory, God's glory, God's glory, God's own glory, God's glory, only God's glory, God's glory. It seemed very insecure. What we actually read in, the, in Isaiah and Jeremiah and the other prophets is that we're supposed to be about his glory so the world can see him and be rescued by him. He is about our good and love for the world. When we fail to do our part, he does his part and our part. And that's where the I will seek my own glory passages come from. But what you need to understand in this, like, let me read this to you. Look at the picture if you want to or read along in your Bible. Either one's fine. There was a man who had two sons. Jesus is telling this story. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. I got to pause. I won't pause tons of times in this story, like two verses in. Sorry. Living in Central Asia, you really get a sense of honor-shame cultures, and, and you really get a feel for how these stories would have been heard by the first audience. They're, here's how this would actually be said here. 
Hey, Dad, you're taking too long to die. All I really wish is that you were dead. But since you can't do that for me, can you at least give me my inheritance so I can get out of here and live my life? That, that's what that sounds like. So the father divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. I have to pause here for two reasons. One, if you don't know this, Jews don't touch pigs. And the first audience would have heard this story and been like, what, pigs? Look how astoundingly he has degraded himself and his father's dignity. Look what he did to his own humanity and God's glory. This is a lost cause. A. B. Also, Luke is setting us up. He was longing to be fed with the pods. In Greek, it's splagnizomai. Not move with compassion, but it's splagna. It attaches itself to his guts. Luke is drawing our attention to the boy's feeling in his gut because someone else is about to have a feeling in their gut. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, He prepares a speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. I've done this before. Have you done this before? I do, it's, it's shaped differently. It's where I confess a sin but I still feel like garbage. So I confess it again with different words. I keep trying to confess my way to some sense of comfort that I'm, I, haven't, I haven't done it one too many times. That's what's happening here. He's building his case, hoping, hoping maybe that if he gets his confession right, that he'll be let back in. Have you ever done that? Am I by myself on that one? Yeah? Good. Man, you guys' ability to stand, to stay completely still and make no sounds is amazing. Yeah, that's good. All right. I've never met a group that could do it so well. All right, here we go. So, <clears throat> he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, first before I tell you what the son said, you know what never happens in Central Asia when you are a grown man? You know what you never do? Run. You don't run. Landholders don't run. Grown men don't run. Boys under 18 might run, but only if, in their employ if they're the employee of someone much more powerful than them. Only slaves ran in the first century. No one runs. So do you know who doesn't care about his glory in this story? The father. The father lost interest in his glory in this story. What caught his attention? What does he only have eyes for? You. You. He only has eyes for you. And when he sees you covered in filth and muck and debauchery and whatever disease you picked up on your travels, when he sees you, what he feels is compassion. He does not feel ashamed of you or bad about you. He feels bad with you that you feel this bad. His heart echoes with your own feelings. That's what compassion is. It is to feel with the other. This is what the father feels, and he runs and greets him and kisses him. 
for time, I'm not going to read the rest of the story, but I'll tell you really briefly. The son tries to get the confession out, and the father is so disinterested in the sin that he interrupts him, doesn't let him finish, and says, hey, get all the stuff, all the stuff that's associated with my glory, put it on this guy. Put it on this guy. I want this guy to feel all the way home. I like this story. As one prone to wander, I like this story. I love it. I love it because when Jesus has the opportunity to clarify for us what God feels when we sin and turn back terrified of what that meant, the God in Jesus' imagination is absolutely boiling with compassion. I, I love that God. Man, I love that God. What else could make me turn after I turned before and it didn't work out? A compassion that somehow manages to outstrip my willfulness. Okay, so you might be saying, yeah, Virgil, but what about wrath? Wrath's real. Let me click ahead because I'm going to, I did all these. But you get a very slow uh, review while I try to get the clicker to, there we go. Wrath's real. Let me, let me set it in an appropriate context for you. Um, the Matthew 18 passage, this is important about wrath. In the Matthew 18 passage, there's this landowner, government official king, and a steward owes him a bunch of money. And the, he calls the debt. And the steward's like, I can't pay it. I can't do it. And it says that the wealthy, powerful individual was moved with compassion and forgave the debt. Forgiveness is always associated with compassion. Get this straight. Get this straight. In the New Testament, it's not like this. God's not going, there. well, you got a lot of sins, but I put all those on Jesus' account, and I put all his righteousness on your account. I feel nothing toward you, but your accounts are straight, so move along. That's not the picture in the New Testament at all. The picture in the New Testament is God is deeply motivated by compassion and forgives you. God feels your estrangement with you and goes to find you and brings you home. But what about wrath? Well, let me tell you where wrath shows up in Matthew. In that same passage, the guy who has received compassion goes out and chokes out another guy who owes him money. This guy, the king, gets him and drags him before him and says, I showed you compassion and you couldn't be bothered to pay it forward. You're out. Like severe judgment. Severe judgment isn't associated, is not associated with you being a human being. Severe judgment is associated with you abandoning your humanity when you look at another human being. So in Hosea, what you get is in the Hosea passage here, I left these passages up here so you Bible nerds can take a picture and look it up later and then come find me and tell me I did it wrong, which is totally cool. I love that. Um, in the Hosea 11 passage, it goes like this. Israel keeps wandering. They keep leaving. They keep going. I taught you how to walk. I held you by your hand and led you. I picked you up out of the filth. I, it was always me. It was always me leading you with kindness. It was always me. You chased other gods, but it was me feeding you while you went selling yourself out to Baals and Ashtoreths and monsters, demons. It was always me taking care of you, but now it's too much. Now it's too 
much. You will not go back to Egypt. I will send you to Assyria, which is a million times worse, and you will suffer, and I will not hear you. I will not hear you. I can't do it. I can't do it. It really reads like this. Hosea 11. He's on this tirade. I'm going to melt your face off. I can't. I can't do it, he says. I can't. How could I forget you? How could I have in the middle of this intense thunderstorm of rage, God's compassion doubles down and pushes his rage out of the way and he says, I can't. I actually can't bring myself to give you what you deserve. I can't do it. My compassion is kindled inside me. You never listen, but I still will not walk on you. Man, this is in the Hosea book. You know the one where he marries a prostitute and she keeps sleeping around? Like, this is in the, this is in the diggity dark book. And God, like, you have this emotionally complex God who's capable of a, of a much broader palette of emotions than just you and me. And when you ask which one wins, here's what God says. I am slow to anger and I don't hold it forever. God's anger is real, but it comes late and it leaves the party early. He is not after flawless performance. He is after those who fear him, who take him seriously. That's different than moral perfection, friends. Okay, we move forward. I have eight minutes. Man. Oh, but this is second story. There's no one coming. I'm never letting you out of here. Oh, what relief I'm experiencing and the terror in your bellies. All right, good. Jesus is compassionate. Jesus isn't compassionate even though he's God. He's compassionate because he's God. God is not compassionate even though he's holy. He is compassionate because he is holy. Here's what he says in Hosea 11. I am moved with compassion toward you because I am not a man. I am the Holy One of Israel. Holiness is not in spite of compassion. Compassion is not in spite of holiness. Compassion is the most full expression of holiness. So let's connect this to last week. Guy reaches out, touches the ark, Uzzah, right? And God breaks out and like lights him up and he dies, right? Yep, that's real. You know what Chuck circled for us? He circled that the group like stepped back and went, man, that's not what I expected to happen. Why did that happen? We did not take God seriously. His compassion, David's about to say, is for those who fear him. Not fear him because he's an abusive father. Fear him the way you hold on tight to the rail when you stand next to the Grand Canyon. When you realize your smallness next to his giganticness. When you realize the relative inconsequentialness of a pile of dust next to the infinite. That is the fear of the Lord. That is what they were missing. You can't reach out and touch the holy. But the holy reaches out and touches you because the holy can't stand to leave you alone. These are different things. Okay. What about this, though? Everybody has a what about this. Every group, I have a, I have, I've, had, I've had what about these. Every group has a what about this. This is how it works. This is how it shakes out. The what about this conversation goes like this. Yeah, that's fine, Virgil, but you don't know what I did. You don't know what I keep doing. You don't know what I do when no one's looking, and you don't know how many times I've given up on even asking for forgiveness because I'm tired of hearing my voice say it. 
You don't know. You don't know. Or the other yes but is, yeah, I hear you saying these words, and I actually came here today because my heart is broken and my guts are on fire, and I am losing my grip on my life, and I'm losing my desire to live it. And everything hurts all the time, except when it's numb, which is worse. And you're saying these words, and I hoped they would comfort me, but they are not doing anything, and I wish I had never come. I am guilty, or I am mortal. I died, someone died, I'm going to die. The, the doctor called, leukemia's back. I just buried this person or this person or this person that never should have died. And nothing matters but that. That's got all of my, it's got all of me. It happened and it's like it happens continually every moment I'm awake. So what about that? You ever feel, feel either of those yes buts? There's a psalm for that. Psalm 103 is a psalm designed for that. Let me check the time. Okay, so I'm not going to read the psalm to you. I double dog dare you to read it though, but I'm going to tell you how it's built because how it's built is actually what's important. When a Hebrew poem opens and closes with the same idea, that means everything in the middle is to be interpreted through that idea. So Psalm 103 opens with, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and it ends with, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Also, bless the Lord, everybody else, because it's really that good, right? That's how it goes. So that means everything in the middle is going to be given as a reason why explosive, effulgent worship might even come naturally to you, might just be a natural response, right? It's going to make sense of that. Right out of the gate, though, the psalmist is aware that you got two yes buts, so he speaks to mortality Sickness, disease, death, and sin guilt. He speaks to both of them. And then he moves directly to the one time that Moses said, we need to know your name. We don't even know your name. We were left Egypt. We're following. It's your, you're literally a fire tornado. We've got to know your name. And he says, I am Yahweh. What's the next, what's the next words? I am Yahweh the compassionate. Top line. I don't know why, I, I don't know, the, the, the Christianity I grew up in never top lines compassion. Top lines everything else, but my Bible top lines compassion. So I want to be a biblical Christian, which means I have to top line compassion. I have to believe that what God is feeling when I am feeling is he is feeling what I'm feeling with me. I must believe that if I'm to be a biblical Christian. I have to. And then David paints the picture of your two yes buts. When I am guilty, tarnished, wrong, and at fault, verses 10 through 12, and when I am frail, sick, aging, dying, afraid, and grieving, 14 to 16, he's going to answer this question. He's going to answer this question. Where is God and what is God doing when these things are true? And he's going to put it right between them to make sure you can't miss it. And this is what it says. As a father compassionately holds his crying child, so the Lord compassionately holds those who fear him. Not those who do it right, just those who fear him. That's it. No more requirement above that for this. As the Lord, this, this is a word picture actually in Hebrew. It doesn't translate directly in English. It carries the idea of being seated. It looks like this. That's the, that's the Hebrew picture. This is what God is doing 
when you are broken, when you broke yourself or you broke someone else, when something broke and you can't get it back, when grief is your only experience, this is what God is doing. This is where God is. All right, I'm, I'm down to five minutes on the real clock, but the actual clock is going to bleed over just a little bit. Forgive, forgive me and have compassion on me because I, have, I work on Spanish time. All right, I'm going to tell you a story, and this is a warning. Um, I'm not going to go into the details, but if while I'm telling the story, it's too close to your story and you can't do it and you want to leave the room, you can leave the room. It's no, no problem. If you can stay and you want to stay, stay, Okay. But there's no problem if you just get up and go. <laughs> Sometimes it happens. All right, so we have five kids who are alive with us and two who wait for us on the other side. One was miscarried before Cademan was born, and the other is, was stillborn uh, before Indy came along. Indy's two. My oldest is 19, my youngest is two. The distance between the... the between Vesper and Indigo is eight or nine years. Um, but before Indigo, there was Hadia Joy. It went like this. Joy, women in ministry have a, th this is what happens around 40. Uh, you enter a bleak depression followed by a nervous breakdown, followed by the discovery of spiritual gifts you never knew you had and a lease on life that you never really could see coming. Right? Like, there's all, there's, there's all these possibly past 40-year-old women going, yeah, that's how it went. That's right. And the men are holding their heads very still or possibly looking over at their wives. So Joy, Joy, was in, Joy had done that, and she was discovering herself. She was discovering how beautiful she is, how fantastic she is. And she couldn't say that out loud, but she was learning about herself, and she was learning how to experience herself as a gift to the world. So good. Then, we, then we're sitting in a cafe, and she's like, I've been sick for a week. And I'm like, just take a test. And she's like, ah, I'm old. I'm like, ah, take a test, right? We're in our 40s. Just take a test. She goes in the grocery store right next to the cafe, comes back, Blanche White, I am pregnant. I don't believe it. And I'm just sitting there eating my, I'm like, ha, 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 ha. Oh, my gosh, my life is over. Ha, 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 like back and forth, right, between these two things, you know. I will be 60 when this kid gets out of the house, you know. And, and ha, 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 this is absurd. And, you know. Look how amazing we are, right? It was great. Um, and it was terrifying. And Joy canceled her Camino trip, her, her, this, this long hike that people take together because you can't do it pregnant. And She canceled a bunch. And God, in the night, gave me a name for this child, Hadia Joy. Hadia is Azari for gift. Joy was, we name each of our kids after what God is doing with us when they're being baked. And uh, Hattie, when Hattie was being baked, uh, we were learning how the, jo get the joy is the gift, and joy herself is a gift, and she should receive herself as a It was beautiful and good. It was good. And then we went to the doctor for a normal checkup, and I will, uh, I'm not going to go into all that because it's probably a lot for you, but um, she died. And the delivery was traumatic and terrifying. And we buried her in Spain, in a wall, in a casket this big. With each of the kids, we prayed every night that God would guide every 
cell migration, every cell division and every chromosome migration. I was a biologist and I'm a nerd. And uh, on the 75th day, apparently, it seemed to us God had just said, no, I'm not going to bother with that today. And then she died. There's no good reason. Autopsy says no reason. Less than 1% of pregnancies end like that with no reason whatsoever at that stage. It's unusual for her to die, almost like something would have to happen to make it so. So some months passed. I'm a trained spiritual director. If you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. It's not as weird as it sounds. I help people notice what God is doing inside them so they can participate. You have to be trained to do that because it's easy to screw it up. I was at the final training, and it's on the beach because everything in Spain is on the beach. Uh, and it's four, it was four months after we buried Hattie. And we were grieving normally, and, you know, we're in mental health stuff, so we know how to do it. We know, you know, the people who know how to do it are never doing it right. Uh, and it's building inside me. Anyway, um, there's a break, a breakout before, um, before a session. Uh, and I'm walking to the beach, and there's a bird on the path. There's this dead bird on the path. And I stop, and I can't move. I remember, I remember this morning when I was telling this story, I was wearing these shoes, because I have in my mind a picture of my shoes and that bird. And I couldn't move. I couldn't move. I just stood there and looked at this bird. I was so sad for this bird. Why would this bird die? What an odd place for a bird. There's no injury on the bird. Why'd the bird die? It doesn't make any sense why the bird's dead. You can see that I wasn't really thinking about the bird, right? I don't want to disturb. The, the bird feels holy to me. I don't want to disturb it. So I, I move around the bird like this, like it's going to reach out and bite my soul. And I back up slowly, and I go to the beach, where I pray for a while. I can't, the bird's in my head. Can't get the bird out of my head. And I go back to, it's time to go back for the next session. My friend Alex, who wasn't yet really my friend, but we knew each other, was, I didn't know this, but he was going to do a session on the theology of suffering. So he had covered all the tables with dead flowers. So I've got dead bird, I've got dead flowers, and I can't get Hattie out of my mind. I keep seeing myself teach her how to ride a bike because I'll never do it. That's what I keep seeing. That and, that and, and, and the trauma, the, tra the traumatic circumstances I keep seeing. Over and over again. He keeps talking about theology of suffering, and I just, want, I just want him to shut up. Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. He won't shut up. I'm sitting in the back. I'm crying. I'm just, I don't, I'm not like a weeper, you know, like I tear up when I talk, but I, like I'm not a, but I'm, I'm crying so loud that I realize that other people can't hear him talk. So I get and leave to be kind to my new friend and all these people who are training. Because remember, I don't notice when it's awkward. Sadly, he's in the front, and that's where the door is. So I get to walk through all the people and past him, out the door, where I go outside, I sit down in the garden, and I hear a sound. I hear a it sounds like howling, and then it occurs to me that that's me. That's coming out of me. So many people have lost children. I don't know what was going on there, but somehow when I lost Hattie, I also lost me, and I lost God. I couldn't protect her.
and I lost part of me. Because since I was little, I was always smart enough to make the bad things not happen. Since I was eight, I remember the day I learned that I can outsmart it and make the bad things not happen, but it happened and I couldn't stop it. And I kept telling, I was there at a spiritual direction training, teaching people how to pray, learning how to teach people how to pray, and I realized I don't believe that it matters. You pray every day for 75 days, and just one day, he just arbitrarily says no. Who does that? So I'm howling. And Debbie comes out. She's 70. I know she wasn't wearing this, but in my memory, she's, she's, got, she got, she's got gray hair and she's got these startling blue eyes, but in my memory, they're gray. And her shirt's gray and her pants are gray. So weird. We sit down and she doesn't say anything. And she's reader silent for a while while I weep. And then I tell her this. I say that Jesus told his students that they were supposed to recalculate their view of the world based on what they saw with the loaves and fishes. How am I supposed to recalculate my view of the world based on this? What's true if this is true? Uh, and I said to her, Jesus said that your father, who loves you, if you ask him for bread, he doesn't give you a stone. And I didn't ask for bread. I got surprised with a loaf of bread with a scorpion in it. Who does that? What kind of monster does that? She didn't say anything. She just wept quietly, just tears, just on her face, not a word, never broke eye contact, stayed with me, just stayed with me and didn't, didn't say anything. And I said, I'm going to go to the beach. And she said, do you need me to go with you? And I said, no. She said, I will sit here for when you come back, maintaining her presence to me even when I didn't want to be around her. And I went to the beach. It's sunny 300 and... 30 days of the year in Spain. It's cloudy 30 days of the year in Spain. I am on the spectrum, I'm pretty sure. I see all of you when you look, when I look you in the eye, I see all the things inside. And it feels sometimes, it feels like, like brightly colored knives stabbing in my eyes, like I have to not make eye contact sometimes too much. And gracefully, it was gray. The sky was gray, the sea was gray. The sand was gray. My clothes were gray. Everything was gray. It was like gentle to me. And I had these questions living inside me. And I noticed that they, I was not asking them. They were just inside me like pieces of glass in my heart that eventually were going to have to come out, but they weren't coming out anytime soon. Probably for the best because I'd bleed out. So I'll just live with the questions in me. But my attention got caught by the sea as the tide rolled in, the tide would roll in and it would roll, and waves would come in and they would come out and I could feel the swell of the sea get big and get small and get big and get small. And my, my breathing started to match the sea. And this sounds weird, forgive me if you, can't, if you can't receive this, but in a moment, I, I could feel God was in the sea, breathing with me, answering none of my questions none of them, respectfully not feeding me trite Bible verses to offend my pain. He simply was bigger than all of my grief, 
and holding my grief and was grieving with me. It was so very much this infinite, unknowable, unfathomable deep sitting next to me, not looking away and not answering my questions. And somehow it was enough. It didn't heal any of the hurt, but I cannot feel alone in it anymore. I'm incapable of feeling alone in it anymore. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for I know you're with me. Not because the Bible says so, but because you showed up and you were with me. Are you all right? I can never tell. All right. I, that clock says, can I have five more minutes to help you be the church in the world? Yeah? Okay. All right. So there's a couple of characters in the Gospels that are moved with compassion. Jesus, a bunch of times, God twice, and you just once. It's in the story of the Good Samaritan. Do you remember this story? A lawyer comes to Jesus and says, what do I got to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what does the Bible say? And he says, well, the Bible says that I should love my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I should love my neighbor as myself. And Jesus says, go do that and you'll live. And the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, says, but who's my neighbor? Who qualifies for my compassion? Who qualifies for my attention? Who's in, who's out? And Jesus says, there was this guy, he was walking down the road, this dangerous road, Jerusalem to Jericho, and some people jumped him, and they beat him within an inch of his life, stole all of his stuff, left him naked in the ditch. Thunk, down he goes. And there was this religious leader who was really good at God stuff and Bible things, and he saw him and he walked by on the other side, because that's what you do. And there was another one, another religious leader that came by, who was actually a doctor, and is morally and legally obligated to help him, a Levite. And goes, yikes, that's sketch, and keeps walking. And a Samaritan, who in these stories is always the bad guy, goes by and he sees him and he, this is what it says, he was moved with compassion and ran to him, treated his wounds, put him on his own animal, took him to an inn, which was like a hospital, paid for his care and said, I'll be back in two days or two weeks to something and I'll pay you again if, any, if I owe you anything else because this guy is me and I am this guy. And Jesus says, which one was a neighbor? And the lawyer says, well, the dude that showed compassion. And Jesus says, you go do likewise. So there are a bunch of parallelisms in this text. Let's back it up. How do I inherit eternal life? Do this and you will live. The do this attached to the law at the end is do likewise. Do what the Samaritan did. What did the Samaritan do? He showed compassion. Let me explain to you what this looks like. Come on. All right. What prepared me for this was this. Debbie didn't say anything. What prepared me for the gray, compassionate silence of the sea was the gray, compassionate, silent presence of Debbie. What made me believe that God was coming to me in the sea was the way Debbie came to me in the garden. The way God sat with me until I was done, that I was prepared for that by the way Debbie sat with me until I was done. But do you know what Debbie had to know how to do? Nothing. Debbie simply had to be brave enough to look my pain in the eye and not have to solve it. She just had to move toward it and not judge it. The bird got me ready for the flowers. 
The flower got me ready for Debbie. No, the flower got me ready to encounter my grief, which was actually not even about, it was not entirely about the loss of my daughter. It was also about the loss of my agency and my theology. That's a lot to lose when you're a man like me. And those losses prepared me for something better. I lost a theology and I got a God. And the way I got him was Debbie prepared me because we are priests. We are a priesthood of believers, a kingdom of priests. As Protestants, we have been led to believe that that means we don't need a priest anymore. But that's stupid because why would God make a kingdom of priests if we don't need priests? We are a kingdom of priests because we are each other's priests. We make the invisible, unexperienceable God visible and tangible to each other as long as we just show up. So, you are here, but you are also here. This icon is called the Sacred Heart of Jesus. It's Roman Catholic, and it's really, really old. It used to be in my yard in Spain. I, I rented, and they had one of these. Um, and I would, I would look at it sometimes. First, it made me uncomfortable because I grew up Baptist, and that means anything that was ever Catholic definitely came from hell. I recently learned that that's not true. That's not actually true. Um, that the devil's Catholic, also not true, right? But, but this, this icon, it's, you've seen it before. It's a heart wrapped in thorns, bleeding, erupting in flame, and shining, shining irresistible light with a cross sticking out the top. Looks like a sacred hand grenade, right? It's intended to, it, it's, it's, Jesus has always depicted pointing at it, and this is, here's why. It's, it's very important to Jesus in the Synoptic Gospels that we understand that that's where we live. We live in the sacred heart of Jesus. It's very important to Jesus that we understand that the raging fury, beautiful glory, the love of God is is just absolutely, we are awash in it because he is awash in our grief. His wounds are our wounds. They're not just your sins, but also your wounds are his wounds. And they're what, they're what let the light out. Not only are you in the compassionate heart of Jesus, you are the sacred heart of Jesus. The reason I love this statue is because I can't tell. Is Jesus blessing me, telling me, hey, Virgil, this is where you live, man. I feel everything you feel, and that's why everything God feels about you is available to you. Be blessed and know that's where you live. Or, or is Jesus saying, hey, Virgil, this thing in my chest, it's in your chest too. Go. Go show the world what I feel about them as you live squarely in how I feel about you. Which one is it? Is it a blessing? Or is it ascending? I think it's both. I think it's a benediction. I think that's where you live, and I think the world will be saved as you learn to live there in the world. When I look at you, this is what I see. You are the sacred heart of Jesus, and you are beautiful. God, you're just beautiful. I can see you, it's one of the creepy spiritual gifts that I got after my midlife crisis. But I can see you, and you look like that. So given that, let me read you this poem one more time. Come on, clicker. All right. Actually, let's submit to the clicker. I'll read you the poem, you look at the picture, and then I'll send you to the world. Once you've heard a child cry out to heaven for help and go unanswered, nothing is ever the same again. Nothing. Even God changes. 
but there is a healing hand at work that cannot be deflected from its purpose. I can't make sense of it other than to cry. Those tears are part of what it is to be a Christian. Out there in the world, it can be very cold. It seems to be about luck, good and bad, and the distribution is absurd. But we get to be candles, burning between hope and despair, faith and doubt, life and death, all the opposites. That is the disquieting place where people must always find us. And if our life means anything, if what we are goes beyond the church walls and does some good, it is that somehow, by being here and in the world, at peace, we help the world cope with what it cannot understand. So, may God be gracious to you and bless you. May he lift up his face on you when you are alone and through the face of other believers. May he shine his smile on you and convince you of his compassion, and may you not resist. And in this way, may he give you peace. You are the sacred heart of Jesus. God did not give you those wounds, but he is making them beautiful, and he is healing you through them. Through them, he is healing the world. Go like this and be the church in the world. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this message from the Summit Church Podcast. Again, if you have questions, visit us at summitniles.com. Now go and be the church in the world.